Welcome to The End of the World, or more adequately put, a podcast covering all forms of pop cultural apocalypses. So whether it be extraterrestrial invaders coming to extract the last few precious resources from our delightful planet, a single cordyceps infected being interrupt- interrupting a good time at the mall, or a meta being bent on destroying the multiverse through an everything bagel-shaped black hole, we have you covered. And as usual, you have as your guides, myself, storyteller Trevor William Horn, and pseudo-survivalist Kenny Brake. Kenny, how are you doing today? Doing good. Wow. We're having a good day today. That's good. Okay. Everything's, everything is everywhere all at once. <laughs> I love where we're going. Okay. Now, Kenny, before we get into the main focus for today's pod, though, I do like the foreshadowing. I have an ethical conundrum of sorts. You have been bitten, inevitably turning into a bloodthirsty zombie within the hour. You have a gun in your hand. Do you end it there or ride it out to the bitter end? Go. Oh, that is the ethical conundrum, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, well, let's see here. Give me a second. Sorry, just so the listener knows, I, I don't prompt Kenny with these questions. I There's very few. The, the survival skills I did, but not a single one of these I've asked you, so I put you on the spot every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, yeah. The survival skills ones, he goes, hey, do you have a top five? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, all right. Because yeah, you're a survivalist. So yeah. You so, so this, yeah. Adaptability. Otherwise, remember. he goes, I got a fun question for you today. So... <laughs> Um, I don't know. Like, I think think the ethical thing to do so you don't potentially cause more harm would be to end it. Yeah. Because you got to think about it. you don't have control over yourself. You don't have control of your body. You're not mm-hmm. the person in charge of yourself anymore. Now all you are is a rampaging being mm-hmm. if you let yourself go. So the ethical thing to do would be to be like, well, to save potentially people around me, especially if you've been bitten and there's plenty of unbit people around you, would be just to end it. Okay. Wow. That was actually quite a serene, clear, concise answer. Well, that was a great podcast, friends, and uh, make sure <laughs> make sure you turn in next week. Um. Okay. All right, for our listeners, this is not the end, though. In everything, <laughs> everywhere, you thought the movie ended two thirds away through, but we will get there. Also, for our listeners, we want your thoughts on this quaint, cushy question. On Spotify, and only on Spotify, when you click on the episode and scroll down, you can vote for one of these two options in our most recent poll. So please, get your vote in, as we will check the results for your ethical guidance on such important matters. Now, as previously stated, this project is all about re-examining apocalyptic portrayals across the multimedia landscape. Movies, shows, books, and all end-of-the-world-related paraphernalia are within the parameters for this pop-cultural project. And so for today, we are continuing our expedition together, but this episode is a tad unique, to say the least, as the hour is near. And by that, I don't mean the end of the world. I mean the Oscars. Woo! Yeah, can we insert a drum roll, please? Oh, that would yeah. be... No, I meant it per... Oh, fine, whatever, okay. <laughs> yeah, we are not that technological savvy in the 21st century to insert a drum roll. But hey, here we are. We'll just have Kenny beat his chest. You know what? <laughs> In this special bonus pod, yes, you heard it here. I said bonus pod. We have set out to cover the potential at the time of this recording, best picture winner, everything, everywhere, all at once. We don't know the results yet. This is coming out before the Oscars. Whether this you're listening to this before or after, you will get much out of it because we're just covering the movie itself. And though the movie is not necessarily dystopic in the traditional sense, it has doomsday implications falling within the parameters for this project. And more so, I just wanted an excuse to talk about it. It's a great movie. <laughs> no, it's it fits. Fun. It fits, right? It does. It fits. Okay, there's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's apocalyptic themes that run through it. Yes. Yes, exactly. So this is your spoiler warning. Anything in or relating to everything, everywhere, all at once is fair game. And so, also for a quick programming reminder, as I've said, this is a bonus pod. So we will be resuming our coverage of The Last of Us. So stay tuned. Don't fret. Don't worry. The hour may be near, but we are covering The Last of Us to the very end, even if we have to get a bunker. So without further ado, Kenny, what did you think of everything, everywhere, all at once? It was a trip. Um, (laughs) 
I really enjoyed it. The first thing I noticed, it's very fast paced. At least like the very like the first twenty minutes. Yeah. Is this like quick movements? You got a roller coaster. You you are just going, and it is fast. You're going this. You're doing this. Every it doesn't it doesn't slow down for you to catch your breath. You jump into the middle of a story. I mean, it's it's the beginning of the story, but it's the middle of what's happening to people around them. You know, they're planning, you know, planning for taxes, planning for a party. Here comes the daughter with her new girlfriend. She wants to know if grandpa wants to meet. Like, it's everything's just and then you're in the middle of it, going, "Let me catch my breath." Which normally in a movie, I'm annoyed by. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. But with this one, with the 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 theories around it, and like just the anticipation of it, and everyone talking about it. I was excited and I knew that was going to kind of happen to have that catch your breath moment. And so I really enjoyed just the pace of it. Also the fact that data's in it or data, however you say his name from the Goonies. Oh, yep. I like, I'm like, he pops in and I'm like, is it? And he has a fanny pack. I mean, come on. Like just, (laughs) you, you just made my day, you know? So I I loved that. It was a very good, Good movie all around. All the different aspects. The little, like, you don't know, like, you're sitting there waiting for the multiverse. You're sitting there waiting, which I will tell you right now, between everything, everywhere, all at once, and Doctor Strange and the multiverse, you have so much more multiverse oh. in this movie. This does a, such well, a better job. this is what job. we thought Doctor Strange was going to be. Yeah, we like, thought. Marvel yeah. was saying, Kevin Feige was saying, you're going to see the multiverse. You're going to be brought through the implications of this. And it's like, we got a paint world. We got, like, two to three worlds. We barely got anything. And I, sorry, this is one of my points. Oh, is, I'll yeah, reel it keep back. Going, keep going, keep reeling. Yeah. Uh, but I loved the use of it, the different things you saw, and the hot dog finger world. <laughs> that was just incredible. That was I like the different cameos of different different people, and I love Jamie Lee Curtis's character. I thought she was fun, um, just as uh, the act, you know, the character she was, how she p- portrayed it. It was a very fun movie, a very touching movie about mothers and daughters and the relationship there. Not, not even a mother and daughter relationship, but a husband and wife relationship. Mm-hmm. And a, I think you touched on this when we were talking about it the other day, um, a mother-father uh, relationship. There's mm-hmm. all these different relational dynamics in this movie, and all of them are touched on. All of them come to a completion, and all of them are very well done. Well, that's that comes back to my main takeaway from the movie, because though the movie, much of the focus and the conversation people talk about it is on the sheer craziness and the zaniness of truly exploring the implications of the multiverse, which is wild. <laughs> I don't think that's the central premise at work. And if I the thing I love about this movie is though we go to all these wacky worlds. Everything, everywhere, all at once always comes back to reality. Though it feels like we're everywhere, everywhere, all at once, all the above, we always are brought back to the central themes at work, which ultimately comes back to the relational dynamic of a mother and a daughter. Yeah. There are other relationships, like you've already said. There's the spousal relationship. There's the, the father and daughter relationship of Evelyn and her father and the shame, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But it does really come back to the dynamic of a mother and daughter between Evelyn and Joy. And the main character, Evelyn, played by Michelle Yeoh, is attempting, as we've kind of alluded to already, to attempting to rescue her daughter, Joy, who has become a meta-being bent on destroying the multiverse through an everything bagel-shaped black hole. And though sounding completely confusing, especially when said aloud, I'm trying to listen to myself now that I think about it, the multiverse plot simply personifies Evelyn's normal life. She's weary, her world pulling in a thousand different directions at once, and you've already alluded this. A marriage falling apart, a daughter choosing her own path, a crumbling business in the midst of an audit from the IRS, years of pent-up shame from her father's constant disapproval, which I didn't notice that until re-watching the movie, because it, it's right in the beginning, the elevator scene, you see her flashing moments of her father's disapproval. You, all of these things are swirling around in her internal world, and the complexity of infinite universes personifies times when life refuses to relent when you're never fully here encountering a lifetime of fractured moments yeah. i mean there's this one moment with the use of mirrors is really fitting throughout the entire movie you pay attention to all the scenes they hang mirrors in random places and there is a scene where the mirrors it's evelyn and it it's her fracturing in multiple places and that co- happens throughout the multiverses but all that merely is represents that t- those times in Evelyn's normal life 
when she feels fractured, when you feel like you're all over the place. And as seen in the very end of the movie, when complexity crushes, it takes courage to be present. It takes work to be present. Like in the closing scene, this is my one of my favorite scenes in movies in the last few years. I, if you hear my excitement talking about this right now, I was so over the moon about this movie. I can't say enough about it. But in the closing scene, when the chasm of animosity seems too wide to cross, when everything really but conviction is stripped away, there's no multiverses, there's no people with hot dog hands, there's no raccoonie. <laughs> raccoonie. <laughs> there is just Evelyn standing in front of her pain-stricken daughter. And that is the central premise of the movie. That's what ties the whole thing together. That is the, the engine that adds the, the sentimental part of the movie. It makes me think of a movie like Coda and other things where there, there's a sentimental core to it that you can tap into no matter who you are, right? There's a piece that it, it draws on your emotional, uh, how would I say it, heartstrings in a lot of ways. And, um, and so when Evelyn's standing before her daughter, she shares what she still knows to be true, saying this profound line, one of my favorite line, line in a movie in recent history. No matter what, I still want to be here with you. I will always, always want to be here with you. And the line just stood out to me because, you know, you have a million uteruses competing for attention simultaneously. Yet what she does is she decides to come back to the present. The antidote to the everything-shaped bagel destroying the universe is not to be everywhere, but it's to be here. It's to be present. It's to be not everywhere, not all at once, fully here, and really finally alive. And so that's where I believe the movie to be actually quite normal. Mm -hmm. I think it's just identifying how hard it is to be present. That it is so hard to, I, in a digital age, in the age we live now, feeling fractured all over the place. But I just think as a human, right? Not just in the digital age. In a human, it's just hard to be present and to not have that constant feeling like life is maybe passing you by. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a sense of like life's passing you by those times where, and it really personifies those times where just almost the gravity of like future or future decisions really grabs you and just won't let go. Or those times of when for Evelyn, even the past, right? There's a sense of regret that really just drags almost to, like the bottom of the sea or something. And when the present is full of everything but possibility, and this, this movie argues and contends that the solution in such times is not looking into the future or past, but coming back to right now as presence is the antidote to the messy plot line of our lives. I mean, that is, presence is the answer. And so I just, I can rant about this movie so much longer. I know I just went on a really long monologue about it. It was beautiful. But I... I cried. So I rewatched. I've seen the movie multiple times. It's the only movie that I've ever cried multiple times watching. <laughs> I don't sound so dumb, but I like even in the ending when the two rocks, yeah, when they're in the rock world and it's like an underdeveloped multiverse where humans never developed anything but being rocks with googly eyes, which sounds again, when I say scenes from the movie, it sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud, probably because it is. But I've never, I've these rocks when they're moving towards each other at the ending and they're flashing between all these multiverses yeah. and the people are moving towards one another. And I'm just crying. Hillary walks in and I'm crying watching these two rocks go through each other. She doesn't know. No, and I'm like, she's like, are you okay? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm great, honey. And I just. Well, and, and, and with that, where like the emotions are there, there's the scene where um, they're fighting in front of the, the, uh, the, the everything bagel black mm. hole and uh, Evelyn has tapped into fighting with kindness mm -hmm. instead. Yeah. And you see uh joy or um, however you, how do you pronounce? Oh, I just given up on trying yeah. to pronounce you see joy actual, in yeah. her, in her, uh, I just say evil form. joy. Though evil. She's not evil. She's not evil. Um, I know. I know. I just, I can't pronounce a name. Of yeah. What you they say call it. other joy. Yeah. Um, other, that's a good way to say it. Other Joy, like, gets into, like, you know, a martial arts defense pose. And the mom, who, you know, she does something, too. She goes, like, the whole, like, martial, up, martial arts wind-up thing yeah. you see. But then she stops, and her final pose is an open-armed hug. Yes. Like, just being there to be like, yes, you are 
positioning yourself in a place of attack and I'm positioning my place myself in a place of surrender to you. And I thought that was very, very moving. That was the part I was like, oh, that's nice. I'm just going to look over here. I'm fine. Dust in the air and all that. (laughs) No, totally. And she had to change her, her approach in many ways of just coming back to here and and not, I mean, a big theme of the movie. And I kind of referenced this already was she couldn't be open-handed in that way with her daughter because of the shame she had experienced from her own father. And that was something I had missed in my first watching because I had focused on Evelyn and Joy, but I didn't realize the relationship for her and her father and the shame that she had in that. I mean, I remember in the beginning, there was this opening, the opening elevator scene where right when Evelyn's husband, but the multiversal version of him shows up and telling her all these, writing down these strange instructions and stuff. And there's this flash forward of all these scenes marking Evelyn's life since birth and preeminent is her father's disapproval. I mean, that's been the major theme of her life. And then you realize how much shame she has buried under the surface, which is manifested in her relationship with her, her own daughter. Now she's just continuing. It's almost like when we talk about the cycle within like a Joel and the last of us or something Mm -hmm. with a trauma cycle, you're continuing what you've known because the cycle and the story hasn't been broken. And so you see this, um, and anyways, but she just continues and until she confronts her own shame and eventually confronts her father in the end of the movie, she's not able to break that cycle. And when she does, she's able to come open-handed to Joy and say, we could do this differently. Right? There is actually a different way to move forward. And that was such a powerful part of the movie because I, my only concern about the shame component is I don't know if, I think anyone can pick up on it. I don't know if Western audiences will realize how tied that is into just as a, like an Asian American into Asian culture. I mean, like we, we don't necessarily live, we live in more of a, in Western society, we live in more of like a guilt innocence dynamic yeah, yeah. where you're guilty or you're innocent. It's more uh, judicious in neighbor, nature. There's more law kind of terms around it where in Eastern societies, like for me, like the Japanese culture and all the above, it comes, it's an honor shame culture. And so it's one of those where the positive of it is there's a really interwoven, your fate, your future is tied into the community. It's not just you doing your own thing, but it's tied into the success and the failure of the community you're in. Yet the negative of that, for example, in Japanese culture is it has one of the highest suicide rates in a developed nation because you don't know how to grapple. You don't always have the framework to grapple with the shame when you're coming out of uh let's say the disapproval of parents yeah. or the network that you're in. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a part, and obviously the movie had it, a predominantly Asian cast and Kung Fu and Asian culture <laughs> and all the brilliant parts of Asian culture interfused into it. But I just thought that shame dynamic was so powerful. And she was able to come to back to what you said. She was able to come open handed because she had broken the cycle of her own shame, not saying that she wouldn't have in real life. It would have been years of therapy. She would have had other things to work through all the above. But in that moment, she had just began to break a cycle that enabled her to change the narrative and the relationship with her own daughter. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah, so I just, that that stood out to me. I thought that was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And relating to the mental health dynamics, there was just so much of the mental health part of it that I thought was interesting. Like I, I thought poignant was, uh, I'll just call it multiversal joy. So yeah. multiversal joy's point about why she built the bagel in the first place because she says this you know why i built the bagel it wasn't to destroy everything it was to destroy myself i wanted to see if i went in could i finally escape yeah and i just thought that the threat of self-annihilation as a means of escape of finally getting like escaping pain the pains of the world that was just really powerful to me because I think sometimes we think people, when they're trying to tear everything down in their lives, it's automatically a, I hate everyone. And a lot of times it comes more from this self-hatred. It comes from the shame that you have. It comes from the stories that you have in your own head. It comes from all these places where it's just so hard to cope with reality. And so I just thought that was really powerful thread. Well, uh, it makes sense in the sense of like talking about the honor shame society. Mm-hmm. You know, her, her mom is a, um, she's a first, she's a first generation immigrant. She comes over. So she still has the, 
mentality of the honor shame. That's what she has. That's what yes. she was born into. That's what she grew up, uh, grew up with. Joy is, you know, born into the Western culture, the yes. Western society. Mm-hmm. So while in the home, the presence of home, she probably has the honor shame. Mm-hmm. The rest of society she deals with isn't that. No, it's different, yeah. And so building the everything bagel was a chance to escape because she's still dealing with the shame. Like she, she, the shame hits her in a different way than it hits her mother. Yes. The shame for her mother is she understands what this honor shame society is. She understands where she's mm. at. Is it hard? It's terrible. It's difficult. Yes. But this is what is normality. Yeah. It's the framework for her cultural worldview. Whereas joy is living in both cultures. Mm. So she's trying to, uh, trying to survive an honor shame culture and a society that doesn't portray an honor shame mm. culture. So trying to, invoke a but this is who i am this is the path i'm setting for myself and the path i'm setting for myself brings shame onto me from my parents and also they feel it brings shame onto them yeah and so it just you know perpetuates into this i am not worthy of being here and then in that multiverse where her mom pushed her to her to the point where her mind broke Mm -hmm. you know and then because she broke she failed and so shame no totally and i you know the instructive is i think of this Brene brown quote i'm always going to quote Brene brown is what it is but she has this really great quote where she says shame is a focus on self guilt is a focus on behavior shame is i am bad guilt is i did something bad and i think that distinctive piece uh, that can be a little bit of a western lens reading it but i think in some ways it's it's instructive and helpful because mm-hmm. it gets to the difference between actions and identity and it gets to that place of do i when i and the, we're again with Joy. I'm not necessarily talking about she did something wrong per se. So this is a difference in distinction of what I'm saying. I'm taking a little bit different train of thought, but I do think there is that that strain of thought in some ways where it's, do I wear this as a part of my identity in a lot of ways? Because Evelyn's carrying so much shame about who she is, and even her father not wanting her in a lot of ways and all the above, and rather having a boy than a girl. I mean, it's Asian culture thing, all the above. Oh yeah, yeah. But then there's. Also, just that distinction between action and identity as well and get really breaking an identity cycle in a lot of ways, too. But, yeah, no, I think you're totally hitting on something with the the cultural. I hadn't thought about that, how the, her sense of self-annihilation, she's living in these two different worlds, and she's trying to. That's almost a multiversal in its own yeah, way. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, seriously, she's living in these two different cultural narratives, and they're in some ways they overlap, but in a lot of ways they're different. There's different ways to be in the world. There are different ways to exist in the world. And just like Evelyn had this fracturing that was taking place, I guarantee in Joy's worldview, she had a fracturing and she's processing her own way between shame and just self-expression and how she finds herself and finds her voice and finds her way. And, and you know, that also I think ties into the different ways characters cope and process in the movie. I, I really thought what was interesting was how different characters coped with difficulty so as we've seen, and we've seen this in The Last of Us too, yeah. there's always these different approaches to broach challenging times and tr- the most trying of times. And instructive was more specifically, was in the multiverse where Evelyn's a movie star mm-hmm. and where her and her husband, they don't actually get together. He brilliantly says, and I just thought this was so interesting. He says, when I choose to see the good side of things, I'm not being naive. It is strategic and necessary it's how I've learned to survive through everything. And I just, I thought that was a really nuanced way to talk about optimism Mm -hmm. because sometimes you think of optimism as just someone who goes through life, looking at the flowers and looking at the clouds. But for him, it's, this is a way to survive a way, an intentional strategy to make it through challenging times. And I just thought it was a really interesting way to put optimism. Yeah. To focus on the good, to try to find the, and I think we touched on this in one of the first uh, Last of Us episode podcasts. Um, it, it, to focus on finding the good, finding the wins, finding the victories in the hardships, in the struggles, and in the trials. And I think for uh, yeah, her husband, he that's what he does. He fights mm-hmm. with kindness. You know, you don't. He's like, you don't have to fight this way. He says in the end, you, you fight with kindness. Find your own way. And he goes, that's what I'm strong in. And so then. That's how Evelyn changes at the end is she starts fighting more in tune with a, a better, a bettering the people around you mm. than being an aggressor. Yeah. Almost uplifting versus tearing down yeah. in that way. And she had to be able to find 
a different way to be in the world and a different way to see the world. And I, I think in a lot of ways she saw, saw her husband's worldview as a place of weakness, mm-hmm. right? She saw his kindness, his optimism as places of weakness when he's saying, no, this is actually an intentional strategic source of strength that I've chosen a way that I've existed. Now this is a different multiverse. So there's different, this characters, but it's the same kind of core essence of the character, yeah. which I mean, that's kind of the cool part of the, the multiverses as well as there's all these characters who, they have different career paths, different arcs based on different decisions, but the essence of the character stays the same. And I thought that was really interesting and compelling as well. Um, you know, nothing made me laugh harder than the dystopian version of the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. It was in the bagel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, okay, I thought this was such a cheeky, but also brilliant way to uh, play off things because, you know, Seuss's book, that was his last, Dr. Seuss's last book. And it's his best selling book of all time. And the sales actually skyrocket every spring. It's one of the top graduation gifts for high schoolers and college students every yeah. spring. I bought it for my kids for Christmas one year. I actually really like the book. So I'm not, but I would say it's his, his book that has the least basis in reality mm-hmm. because I mean, we all know this, you're not going to go to all the places you want to go. Even if you try, you will be thoroughly disappointed because life inevitably reminds us of our limits. And you, and Actually, I think the narrative within it is actually kind of dangerous at times because when you try to be everywhere, you're nowhere. When you try to live a life without limits, you end up realizing you end up never being based in. It's almost like that living in the clouds versus living in actual reality. Yeah, yeah. In which way is it top down or bottom up? And I think as a young person, I always thought life, the vision for life was top down. I had this big ethereal vision in the clouds I built up. Versus like for me now, it's more, I see life more bottom up that you build through habits, you build through these routines, you build, and you, you do need some vision at times, but I just thought in a society that says you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, I thought Joy's, <laughs> Joy's comment and the critique of that book was really fitting when she says, when you put everything on a bagel, nothing matters. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I mean, don't be wrong. Everything bagel is delicious. Yes. Toasted with a little bit of sour oh. cream, with some chives, and a little bit of salmon on there. Oh, it's perfect. But uh, no, and that's you were touching on like it's it. The theme of that book can lead to hardships, especially like if you try to go everything, every place you want to go, you realize some of those places you don't want to go. No, totally. And I think sometimes you, it tethers you to a a belief about the world that gets backwards where meaning actually is drawn from Mm -hmm. because meaning is not being meaning isn't developed and drawn from being tied to the clouds it's being tied to other people meaning isn't dried like in vocational life isn't tied to dreaming up whatever you think you want to do with your life but it's actually going through the rhythms and the habits that create meaning with other people it's not top down but it's bottom up in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and so i just thought the the complexities of the multiverse and the possibilities of that are just as, because you see when there actually are, if you actually believed, if we actually believe there are infinite amount of universes. <laughs> if we actually believe. No, there, there's a, <laughs> okay. There's a, we'll unpack that after, after the pod. That could be our next pod. The, uh, the probability, plausibility structures for the multiverse. But if we actually believe this, there's a nihilism that comes with that. Because there's so much possibility, it's almost too much possibility. Mm-hmm. There's so many endless possibilities that you get lost in the possibilities. You almost drown in possibility. And you see Joy. She's drowning in the endless worlds that she sees. And in a world that says you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, people are drowning in that. And this, this again, this comes back to what I said earlier. It comes back to presence. It comes yeah. back to I need to ground myself in a place with a people and that's where life is found. And I think that's the power in the critique of the movie in a lot of ways, is it always is bringing us back to reality. And it's funny it brings us back to reality in a movie that spends so much time in Not non-reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the, the joke of the, book, the movie in a lot of ways. Um, I, I have some other little things. Uh, I mean, the Kung Fu, creative and wild. Oh, yeah. Amazing. B- breathtaking. The uh, Rakakuni. That whole little storyline <laughs> it was perfect instead of ratatouille yeah Dude, you mean ratatouille like, no ratatouille. <laughs> i 
and then they actually just play on that and give you a raccoonie. I, so. I, I just was trying to think what writer came up with that. Yeah, uh, whoever <laughs> they deserve an award, and hopefully they get one. You know. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. I hope they win. Yeah. And, um, let me think. What else? Oh, when they drop the end, in the yeah. two thirds of the way through the movie, and the director. I thought that was just a cheeky. Yeah, it was kind of like, a, oh, this is yeah. Well, and then the it was um, the director's name and the character yep. names were the characters from the movie. They weren't yes. the actual actors. I was like, okay, I see what we're doing. With this yeah, there was yeah. I liked the doing something weird to transition to the other self or the mm. multiversal self of you, like uh, when uh, like the, eating chapstick, eating like chapstick, yeah. or um, you know having to tell the lady that's attacking you you love love you. Or the the one scene I thought was that made me absolutely cringe, which was you need to give yourself five paper cuts. Oh, oh man! Oh man! Yeah, so I was like, I was sitting there, like I'm watching it, like like everything else about the movie. I'm like, oh okay, whatever. That scene, I'm like, ah, ah. that was painful. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, it reminded me of like when I was a kid and we were watching Jackass, and one of the stunts they did was taking a Manila envelope and giving themselves paper cuts. Oh! And I was, it was yeah. Anyway, going back to the movie, um, I really enjoyed that. It was creative. Yes. It, they they were like, it wasn't. It was is. You know, you get some movies where like let's you know throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, and they did that. But then they went, okay, well let's rearrange this pattern over here, rearrange this pattern over here, and wow, that really works. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really nice. Well, and I think it gives it the flavor. I so this is where I will say I, I'm raving about it. It's one of my favorite movies I've seen in years. I also understand why people either don't get it or don't like it for that very reason. It's yeah. got the cult classic kind of vibe because it's so. What I love about it is how creative and wild and free it feels, but I also can understand why people that may lose people in the process. Like I was talking to Hillary about it and it didn't resonate. She liked the movie, but it didn't resonate as deeply. And it's been interesting as I have conversations with people about it, I've been listening and doing research about it. I find there's a very stark contrast in responses. Either Mm -hmm. you love it, not that people hate it, but they just, it, maybe there's a little more, not apathy, Indifference. Indifference, or you just love it. And I'm obviously in the love it category. Oh, I love it. I think it's fun. But I think it, I can see why people, the zaniness and all of it, it can be a turnoff as well. If there's not, yeah, there's some, there's some people I think who like, they can appreciate zaniness if there's, if it's like one portion or one character, but the rest of the movie's grounded. Yes. And this this movie isn't. Yes. You know everything is. Oh, it's ungrounded. It, everything yep. is up in the air and. This ship takes off, around. like you said, right away, and we don't come back down till the very end. Exactly. So I think yeah. that's probably what it is. It's like you can have the one or two zany characters mm-hmm. if the rest of them are grounded, and oh, that's that character or that's that one story arc. But when the entire movie is that story mm-hmm. arc, it makes it difficult for some people to like latch on to. Well, my only critique, the only thing I have to say is that between, gosh, maybe it's the. 70% of the way through the movie to the to 85 or 90% of the way before the scene that I've already referenced with, with Joy and Evelyn mm-hmm. in the end of the car and that really profound moment. They're, for most of the movie, they do a really good job of intertwining the real, realities, the circumstances of you know the IRS and all the things that are happening in Evelyn's actual life with the multiversal storytelling. There's a part in there in the second two-thirds that's a little unhinged at times where you just go, we're full multiverse, no ground in reality. I love that part, but I also see why that could lose people at certain points. I mean, I think it brings it home, obviously, with the emotional, mm-hmm. really the emotional heartstrings that it lands with. I do see why maybe there's a portion that could lose people as well, because you totally, this plane takes off at a certain point, and we're in so many universes all at once, and it can get a little unhinged, which I loved about it, but I could also see why people be turned off by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, is there anything else you want to say about everything everywhere all at once? Go see it. Just... Yes. experience oh it? it's on it's on showtime yes yes which um you free can trial get, you can get through amazon get your free trial and then cancel yeah um, that's <laughs> that's what you do until you know that it's it's past oscar season and you know one of the other streaming servers picks it up now i think i've said every oh the last thing i'll say is the eyeballs everywhere so just like the mirrors in every scene oh, the googly when, yeah when you watch the when you watch the the movie pay attention to the googly eyes the very opening scene the there's the bean bag like the laundry bags above yeah there's the purple bag with googly eyes and they drop those little things throughout the whole movie and it makes sense when you get to the rocks and how, yeah. how it coalesces 
But it's another thing with mirrors. They have these really little details they drop throughout the whole movie that you just kind of got to watch for. They're like these little presence kind of dropped out the movie that if when you re it actually adds the rewatchability mm-hmm. because you realize there's all these things you didn't see after multiple watches that you can always be finding and i just thought that was absolutely brilliant now we don't just want to talk about everything everywhere all at once today we also want to talk about like i alluded the hour is near the oscars are upon us and so what i wanted to do and i kenny agreed with me is Woo. i wanted to give my final Oscar rankings before the actual Oscars. Now, for some of you, if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this after the fact, I think it can benefit you because you're going to hear about a bunch of movies right now. And I'll tell you what I what I thought were fun watches. I'll tell you which ones, in my humble opinion, you should definitely avoid. You know, you <laughs> can do whatever you want with that. We'll tell you where they're streaming. I've tried to find out where they're streaming with all of these two. So even if we're post-Oscars and you're listening to this, you're going to hear about a bunch of movies and hopefully I think you'll find some hopefully good watches in the process. You'll find some movies probably not to watch. And if before the Oscars, well, we'll see how prophetic I am. <laughs> we'll I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on this ride with you. I think I, when it comes to the Oscar nominees, I've seen two of the movies. Okay. Well, so. I've seen all of them. So I was just, I was, I've been itching to talk about it. I mean, I've been, as I've said a million times, I've written articles on all these movies. I've been thinking about it. I've been swimming in these waters. And so I'm just really excited to talk about it. Now, as I jump in, before I get in the top 10, I got to give some honorable mentions. I want to give in my ride-in votes because there's a few movies I just, I wish were in the top 10. They are the, they are not best picture contenders. They're not nominees, but they're the best in my own heart, <laughs> which is the most subjective way I could put this. So first on my list, I have the movie Babylon. My dear, dear Babylon. Directed by Damien Chazelle, known for movies like La La Land and Whiplash, this movie personifies the sheer panic coming with the times passing. Based in 1920s, loosely following the end of the silent film era and the beginning of synchronized sound, or talkies as they're referred to, Babylon traces the journey of multiple characters caught in changing times. And other than really the opening prologue, the first 30 minutes, the movie can be split into two halves. Essentially, the first there is the rise of various movie stars with unexpected breaks and chance encounters and below the surface work. And then subsequently, the second half is their inevitable fall, grappling with the movie machine inevitably moving on no matter how famous you are. Now, many have commented on the unnecessary opulence throughout. And if you decide to dive in, know that this movie takes everything to the ninth degree. Strange sexual acts, copious amounts of cocaine, and unadulterated debauchery are all on display, including an opening 30-minute epic Hollywood orgy. Yes, I, Kenny's giving me that face right now. <laughs> I have not seen this movie. Okay. Well, so I thought the first 30 minutes was like a party. I thought it was going to be like a, you know, like a, a party. No, it's a, it's borderline orgy dance party in Hollywood with stars. So other than the first 30 minutes... Uh, can you skip the first 30 minutes? Yeah, well, you can. I Okay, so the movie is about... It's about excess. Yeah. Elaborate excess. I mean, everything. Damien Shell's turned up everything to 10. I mean, Margot Robbie in the movie is wild. She's my favorite character in the movie. She is just turned up. Every scene she comes on, it's she's turned up to 20, and she's ready to bring it. And so it can make, for some, the moral of the story hard to discern. Like, it can be easy lost in translation. But despite the 1920s placement, I think actually Babylon's subject matter takes an old setting but makes it actually quite modern because Chazelle puts his finger on, a malaise, I would say, a malaise, that, a malaise that floats below the surface of all modern makers and creators. He's really asking us the question, how to grapple with grief arising from just that inner voice that talks to you about the, the, the brevity of our days, right? It's reminding us that Everything we create, everything we do will end. There's an impermanence to everything we do. And how do you grapple with that? And in this movie, what we see in a lot of the characters, and they all grapple with it in different ways, but you know, they many of them are grappling with it is just going as hard as possible to many excesses as possible. It's really invites us all to to ask the question, how do we wrestle with being forgotten? Mm. How do we wrestle with one day, no matter how famous, even if you reach the zenith of fame in your day, you will be someone who someone no one will remember. They will walk past your gravesite and they'll be like, who's that person? <laughs> Whether it takes a year, 20 years, 50 years, 
500 years. Everyone gets forgotten inevitably. And this movie invites us to wrestle with that. And so that's why I really liked it. That's a that's a tough wrestle too, because they're like mm-hmm. there are some people in life, I think, who their desire is to be always remembered. Their desire yes. is to go down to the history books. Most of us we're we're two generations away from being forgotten. Yeah. That's just what it is. That's life as a normal person. Yeah. Unless you do something like a podcast that will get picked up by Spotify and <laughs> you know We're open Spotify. <laughs> if you want to sign us, we are free agents, I'll tell you that um, much. You know, you you don't have a longevity to your legacy. Yes. You'll always have the ability to be remembered by um, your friends um, or your your kids, but you get down to where you're, you know, you have grandkids, great grandkids. Eventually you get to the point where you go, oh, that was so-and-so of so-and-so, and that's about as much as you get. Um, maybe no, that's it, totally it. Yeah. maybe in our day and age it might be different because of all the digital ways we can remember things. Um, we have how you can store memories on the computers and like there's more more opportunity to for a longevity of yeah, your history. Kids aren't gonna read that. But it's like even it's still, like when they don't they don't read the picture books in the back, you know, like the Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But even still yeah. the actual human memory of you can die away pretty quickly. So, so yeah, it wrestles with that. And I think anyone when you said even just with fame Anyone who creates anything, that's why why it resonated with me. It's just someone who gives their life to creating things. You realize how impermanent the things you create are. And I just, I feel Chazelle's energy of wrestling with that. Mm. And I think if you come with that mindset, the excess, even the sexual excess, the drug excess, all the, there's this weird scene of a descent into hell that has Toby Maguire at the end of it. Anyways, but yeah, that's, that, was, Toby. <laughs> that was a strange part of the movie. I, I, a very peculiar part of the movie. Nonetheless, if you come with that mindset, it makes a lot more sense. And that was why it's an honorable mention. Okay. I want to give another honorable mention is my next honorable mention is director Jordan Peele's Nope. And we, we saw, saw that one. So yep, I've seen saw... three movies. Well, that one, this isn't a best picture nominee. This is just my Never mind. honorable mention. <laughs> this is essentially Jordan Peele's alien flick of sorts. But as he always does, there's so much more under the surface, especially the topic of spectacle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely comical. The lengths the main characters are willing to go to capture a video of an elusive creature in the clouds. They set up sophisticated cameras, constantly pointed at the skies. They hatch a kooky plan to get the alien ship out of hiding. They recruit a famed cinematographer crazy enough to sacrifice everything for the shot. Most telling is when a TMZ reporter shows up in the midst of the scheme, unceremoniously eaten by the merciless Martian, belting out with dying breaths, I need my camera. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think the message is clear enough. Nothing is costlier than a curated life. Mm-hmm. They are, it again is comical how focused they are on trying to capture. And I really believe this alien movie is not just really, it's not really about aliens at all. It's Peel's critique of just the age we live. Yeah. And um, because on the surface, an obsession with credible documentation seems innocent enough, but people are obsessed about that kind of stuff all the time. However, there's no greater cost than avoiding when that causes you to avoid the actual problems at hand. Hmm. Because, I mean, their, their thoughts flutter to how their life will dramatically change when they go viral with this picture or this photo and that kind of thing or this video. But this only diverts from facing and dealing with reality. I mean, a failing ranch, the recent loss of a father, fractured interpersonal dynamics between brother and sister who barely get along outside of this, all treated as a secondary issues because of the compulsion to capture. And though they get the shot in the end... The irony is that everything is sacrificed for spectacle. Yeah. No matter what it is. And so I just thought it was a really pertinent message. It's on Peacock if people want to watch it. I've rewatched him old ones. I loved that movie. I was really disappointed that it wasn't in the top ten for the best picture. Do you have any thoughts on it? I mean, we saw it together. We do. And no, I I think I just agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a fun movie. I, I enjoyed the comedic aspects of it. Um it's very beautiful as mm-hmm. a movie to look at. So, oh, the alien again when he comes out of yeah. the ship it uh, he or she, whatever it is, it, it was absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. Yes. It's almost like, um, I think he was going for like an, like a angelic type of, uh, mm-hmm. creature versus like an alien looking creature. So, yes. Yeah. No, it was definitely a creative, I, the alien itself. I don't, can't think of a movie where it, it's captured in that way. Cause the alien is a ship. Yeah. But then when it unveils itself, it's beautiful. And I think it's just one of those when the people actually look at it. Right. There is a beauty there. It is dangerous, but it's yeah. also beautiful. Now, those are my auto mentions. I'm trying to think if I have... You know, actually, I'll give two really quick auto mentions. I won't say anything. The Pixar movie Turning Red. Didn't see it. Oh, loved it. It's on It's on Disney+. Plus. 
And then the other on Netflix, the movie Hustle with Adam Sandler. He's a basketball. He's a basketball scout. I didn't see it, but I, I'll, I'll have to check that one. Though, out. Neither of those would ever get nominated for a Best Picture nominee, but I just liked both of them. Hustle was great because they use a lot of actual NBA players. Okay. But usually that leads to terrible acting. But they actually did a really great job, including, anyways, those two movies. I just really like those. Okay, here's my actual top 10. All right, now for the main event. From worst to best. I mean, maybe not worst, but just from, I will be, what's a better word to say than worst? From least to best. Least to best. Great. Okay. For the sake of suspense, my top 10. Now, I'm going to give the first two really quickly, and then I'll talk about the eight fallings. Number 10, women talking. Number nine, triangle of sadness. Now, I'm just going to go right number eight because for time's sake, I want to cover these. Uh, drum roll, please. Number eight, the one and only Elvis. This is director Boz Lerman's bio biopic, obviously on the life of Elvis. Overall, the main character Elvis in the movie cinematography, I would say model a, how do I say it? They model a corollary lostness <laughs> that uh, that is almost akin to watching... It's just hard to conceptualize, yeah. honestly, the movie. it, As one can guess, it follows Elvis's life. But the movie just last, lacks a focus. I read one review of it where they said it was something like a Wikipedia page entry about Elvis's life. Because they just... Lerman puts, covers so much of his life. It's a really long movie. And you just continue flashing between scenes. You're, there is a lot of excess, kind of like in a Babylon 2. But the movie's like watching watching the king's frenetic jerking on stage. It's all over the place. It's wacky. It's wild. And I I wanted to give the movie the benefit of the doubt that this was there was like an intended correlation. But I just don't think that was actually correlated. <laughs> Babylon, I thought, was intentional. Like, I thought Damien Joe was trying to destroy his career by this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was self-destruction, self-annihilation, look at the everything bagel. Uh, Elvis, it just felt like, you just felt lost when you were watching it. It felt like a lot of information, but very little directive point for the movie. Um, and so, yeah, I just, it wasn't my favorite. It was, I guess the way I would say it was, it was Lerman's delirious depiction. <laughs> now, okay, number seven. Uh, number seven. Oh, and actually, Elvis, you can find on HBO. HBO? That's the one my barber keeps telling me to watch. Okay. I There's a lot of people who liked it. I actually think there's an age gap, too. So I find a lot of boomers really like the movie. Okay. A lot of people who have dis, more of a disconnect with the life of Ella, Elvis and all the above. For me, younger generations, I just wasn't as interested in mm -hmm. the life of Elvis. Uh, Austin Butler, there's a good chance he's going to win like a, a top... Uh, not best movie, but best actor. Yeah, best actor role and stuff, and best male actor. There's a good chance he could win the award. I thought he was. I thought he was good in the movie. You know, I just, I just thought the movie overall was all over the place. It was too much information. It was way too long, and it was just kind of hard to follow. And that leads into number seven. Number seven, Avatar. Didn't the way see of it. water. I I know. I, I'll just admit. I struggled to say anything meaningful about this movie other than pointing out the screensaver-like oceanic shots, which are captivating. I, what were you going to say, Kenny? No, go. You can finish your thought. No, finish. What were you going to say? You go for There's it. There's no cultural relevance to the Avatar movies. Oh, not at all. They, they come and they go, and you don't think about them to five years later. You'll think about a, a nope. You'll think about a... Um, everything everywhere all at once because it becomes a cult classic avatar is one of those movies that's going to come out and they'll get some kind they'll be nominated for something just for the visual arts oh, because the acting is stiff. i know it's just and they'll take another 10 years to get all of them it's there's nothing there's nothing fulfilling about avatar and oh, I know. people you know you'll fight me on this i'll i'll you know but i'm, I'm with I'm oh in i know the camp with you, but yeah. there's nothing fulfilling about avatar and i think the fact that it's nominated is just a shame no totally it's a crisis it shows how we're in a crisis of storytelling. I mean, really, they're in a story. You need to I remember I'm a storyteller. You have to have a cultivation of characters who the audience can actually connect with and find some resonance, which requires humility and honesty with characters themselves. And I just, the movie, we're given an underdeveloped wife character, an adorable youngest child whose only purpose in existence is to be cute. An eldest son killed off solely for dramatic effect. 
and a father who has a single-minded fo focus on protecting his family, which is a very instinctual part of our humanity. But it's his only reason for being. It's the only thing he ever talks about. And I just wanted more nuance. Yeah. Like the character, yes, what protection is a is a core instinct of any parent. You want to, I want to protect my boys. I want to protect my children. Yet there's also there just wasn't anything else to the character. It was underdeveloped, and I just don't know where they're going. I mean, supposedly, as he's as they say, Jake Sully says, solely stick together. But the story gives us little reason to actually believe this should or is the case. Okay, number six, I don't want to talk about it anymore, uh, is All Quiet on the Western Front. It's a war movie. It's on Netflix. It's based on the novel published in 1929 and the subsequent Academy Award-winning film in 1930. This German-language adaptation processes the physical and mental traumas of war. Best encapsulating the overall premise is a young soldier named Ludwig soberly declaring in the trenches, Somehow this isn't how I imagined it. So through and through serene, serene still shots and ominously overpowering sounds, like there's just this, uh, I don't know, it sounds like the sound of a, a gurgling factory or something. It's just this really a low rumble yeah, type of. Uh, like a bass. Yeah, like yeah. the bass of a car or something. Mm -hmm. Director Edward Berger brilliantly follows along lines of disillusionment, showing the gap between expectation and reality in war. I like the movie. The only negative I would say is... And it's not a critique of the movie itself. It's a critique of all, all war movies. On The Ringer, Adam Naiman had like a really great article about this. But the problem is, so most directors, when they make, like I think of a Steven Spielberg making Saving Private Ryan or something mm -hmm. like that, they're always trying to push the technological sophistication for the war movie. So you think of like that scene on D-Day and like hitting the beach. I remember as a kid seeing that for the first oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And every director, they when they cut their teeth on a war movie, they're trying to push the envelope of how they what they're portraying. And so in one to, in one scene, that's there's a positive because it's portraying the reality, the devastation of this. Yet in another way, even a, like All Quiet in the Western Front is a is a critique of war, right? It's it's meant to be a critique of the disillusionment of war itself, but it's so sophisticated again in cinematography that it all war movies in one way or another end up glorifying war. In one way or another, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they're pro-war, but they end up bringing a glory to something because the directors are trying to push an envelope of technological development. So it, they're it's trying almost... to make it look as as real and visceral yes. as possible, and in that aspect, they're glorifying what you're looking at. Exactly, and you could say, well, doesn't that just make it more real? So it doesn't glorify it, but in in one way, but in another sense, it does end up. So that's the only tension in the yeah. movie. But the movie itself, I like the movie itself. Thought it was interesting. Enjoyed it. Yes. So on that token, I've read the book and I've saw, seen the 1930. Oh, you version. have. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the, oh, so, you have seen some of these. Okay. Don't well, actually... the, the 1930s. Oh, that's fine. That's yeah. great. Yeah, and I, and I love them. They're both. They're, they're both amazing. If you want a good depiction of World War One, that is not glorifying in its aspects. Mm -hmm. Watch "They Shall Not Grow Old" by Peter Jackson, mm. where he took um, archival footage of World War One from all over the place, colored it, um, like he treated it, colored it, and then has uh, commentary from uh, sur uh, not well some old uh, interviews of survivors um, before they passed oh, wow. and then uh, generals and different people that uh, experienced things and so it's just it's a great um, it's a great look of World War one without it being glorified because oh. it really puts you in the trenches with the guys and you feel what it is about um, oh that's interesting okay and another way another thing to look at World War one if you're interested in World War one history World War one history is fascinating. Uh, listen to the Blueprints for Armageddon by um, uh, Dan Carlin. Is that who it is? Is it a book or is it a podcast? It's a podcast. Oh, it's, okay. each po it's like a six-part podcast. Each podcast like three hours long. Say it one more time. What uh, is it? The Blueprints to Armageddon. Okay. And it is, it's again, fascinating because it breaks down the, the pre, you know, during and post World War One, and what would have happened with slight changes? What would have happened in how Europe was structured? Why things happened a certain way? Mm. The the advancement from um, gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemanly warfare and chivalrous warfare, where it was kings and you know and and leaders putting some guys here to the warfare we saw into World War Two of this trench based. Every you know, thousands of people dying a day. Warfare, so it's just really. World War One is a unique time. I'm looking. I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch. I think it. you'll actually like this one. It, it again, I liked the movie itself. Also, no, it is from the German perspective mm -hmm. of World War One, and so that was unique and interesting as well. And you find the reasons and compelling for why people join war. There's just a uh, no matter the side. There's a uh, 
They're common threads in war in general. Oh, yeah. You can draw from it. Okay, number five, the Fablemans. In a semi-autobiographical retelling, Steven, director Steven Spielberg presents his own childhood. I thought he did that with Super 8. <laughs> did, did he not? I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen Super Neither Eight. Neither have I. So, oh, okay. I just uh, thought that was supposed to be like, this is my childhood, everyone. Uh, well, okay. While the names are changed and creative liberties are taken, the base plot of the Failman surrounds a childhood circ- circumstances shaping one of the most famed directors in history. Yes, Missing is a killer T-Rex. There are no ominous great whites or any sign of extraterrestrial life, but an even scarier beast is found in Sp- Spielberg's family of origin. <laughs> that line took me a while to write. Anyways, akin to me. <laughs> The movie's like being a fly in the wall for his childhood. I mean, he changes the names. The I, Here's what I'll say. It's it's like, it feels like watching, if you sat in on someone else's counseling sessions. Okay. That's what it's like. And so the movie's really slow. The The pace is very slow. But it is, it's more of a self-reflective movie. When you watch it, it's one of those where you you end up reflecting on the ways that you've been shaped by your parents. Mm-hmm. And if you have kids the way you shape, you shape your kids as well. And so it, it, though it also has Spielberg's kind of movie magic storytelling too. So he, he keeps the essence of what he, his strength and what he's good at, but it's more inward. It's more self-reflective mm-hmm. in that way. And so I liked it. It's it just, it, the, my only thing is it's kind of slow. You okay. just gotta be prepared for that. Yeah. All right. Number four, we saw this movie together. The Banshees of Inna Sharon. That was a great movie. I enjoyed that movie. Well, and I here's what I'm gonna say. My critique of my list is, if I have a critique of my list, it's that the Banshees is at number four. <laughs> that is my because I just couldn't. I'll explain a reason later. I just couldn't figure out. There's a good chance the Banshees is a dark horse to win the Oscar for Best Picture. It, um, yeah. What did you think of the movie? Oh, I thought the relational aspect between um, Brendan Gleeson's characters and Colin Farrell's character were just incredible oh absolutely um the loss of friendship uh, or the, the not even the loss of friendship in aspect it's it's um it's the one person ending the friendship and the other person not knowing why the relational dynamic of one person like we were talking about leaving a legacy with mm-hmm. um earlier yes. you have a person that's going i'm not going to be remembered that's mm-hmm. brendan's character i'm not going to be remembered so i'm going to write this piece of music and mm-hmm. this friend i have slows me down you know, we have, yeah, we have good talks, but they're not, they're talks about nothing is one of the things they talk about. It's like, mm-hmm. he goes, I thought we talked about this the other day. He goes, we don't have any intellect. There's nothing here. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I'm going to focus on me, which the way he went about it, probably the wrong way to go about it. Just cutting <laughs> cold Turkey with friendship. But his desire is to leave a legacy behind him of something. Yes. Um, I thought it was very well done. The acting was superb. It was the trailer made it seem more comedic than, <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was dark. No, it, you, the way you was, set it up, I thought I was going to a comedy. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm oh, like, yeah. It's really dark. And then we're sitting there going, well, that, that part was funny, but but dang. So, well, we're the only ones in the theater when we yeah, saw it. Too, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were with my brother and my dad, and all of us were like, all right. Well, it so, ends and you go, what did I just watch? Yeah. And, and, and what, it's, it's on HBO. So if anyone wants to watch it, it's on HBO, HBO Max. I would say it, as you're hitting on, in one sense, the plot is really simple. It's one person no longer wanting to be friends with another. Yet it's also, there's so many threads, whether the threat of despair, mm-hmm. the threat of despair and the confessional theme of there's this despair that's always under the surface. There's the themes of the Civil War and war backdrop. If you actually study the historical background of, of Ireland in that time as oh, well, yeah, yeah. there's a ton in the background that they, you hear the shots off the coast, but they don't really go into it as much. Where there's conflict around that. Yeah, it takes place on an island uh, out off the off the coast of Ireland. Yeah, 1923. Yeah, yeah. And so there's so many just brilliant strands. And again, I just it's so simple yet it's so profoundly deep simultaneously. And so I think in one sense you could just get the basic parts of the story, and in the other sense there's so many complexities with it. Mm-hmm. Again, this is the one. If I'm going to critique my list, I wish I could have had higher but I just couldn't do it. And this leads to my number three, the one and only Tar. Tar was like watching, have you ever watched a YouTube video of Nolan Ryan throwing a baseball? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he hits 108 miles an hour and you you watch him on the mound, he throws it and the batter's in the box and the batter doesn't realize the ball's hit the glove already and then he looks back 
and he's like, holy smokes, that ball just blasted by me. That's Kate Blanchett in this movie. She's throwing heaters. Like I, the movie itself, I can't rank, rank higher. I, I would say it's my dark horse for the Oscar. I think it's for best picture. I think it is the dark horse. It's the, if there was an upset, this would be the upset I would see. But it is, uh, how to say it? It is, Kate Blanchett is, is stunning. The movie is borderline shocking. It's, I mean, the word I wrote down was sublime. But it's just like this incredible performance. It's ba and basically, so director Todd Field, in a long-awaited return, weaves a tale about the greatest living composer-conductor, Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett. And, and at first, the plot seems to be a struggle between art and artist, mm -hmm. right? A gifted ma maestro graced by the gods to guide supernatural melodies. However, the story slowly slithers, revealing this dark underbelly. This is not a savant, but a manipulator masquerading as a maestro. That line took me a long time to write. So. Well done. Thank you. While her external world is carefully crafted down to the words on her Wikipedia page, this distracts from a rapidly unraveling internal world. And in one sense, the movie is just a modern cancellation story, right? It's someone who they out externally have all the gifts, but internally don't have the character to match the gifts they have. Mm, and so they're abusing, yeah. they're, using power they're telling this narrative domineering through sexual misconduct all the above though there's something else at work the questions of the pastor ask alongside the plight of the present so i thought the the plot has offers to us and this is why i just don't think many people watch this movie is because it asks us like how do we deal with complicated characters in history does the state of the sing the singer's soul or the creator's soul matter for the song produced is conduct of consequence for craft and it's the question we're repeatedly asking ourselves in our day as well when we look back on historical figures and we look at today. And so, um, and also I should say, if you spend, like I did, 30 minutes trying to figure out if Lydia Tarr is a real person, because I left the movie, I legitimately thought she was real. <laughs> Kate Blanchett was so all-consuming, so powerful on screen that I was thoroughly convinced she was real. So I'm Googling trying to find her, and I'm like, why can't I find She's one of the greatest computers. <laughs> She is not real. She is not real. But again, this goes back to Kate Blanchett's performer, which is borderline shocking. Uh, again, my dark horse for the Oscars. Number two. I don't think it actually would get number two in an Oscars ranking list. But, but if it's they, your number two. But if they actually rank this, Top Gun Maverick. Look, you know the movie, so I don't need to tell you the plot. But it is just... I still can't get over, I just wrote an article on it, one of the best scenes in recent movies, cinema history, the stunning reunion of pilot Pete Maverick Mitchell and Admiral Tom Iceman Kazansky. I mean, just a beautiful moment. It, if you actually know the scene as well, in the scene, Iceman has, he's got cancer, he's dying from cancer, and so he can't speak. And you see him tight on the screen where he says, you know, it's time to let go. And he really counsels Tom Cruise and reaffirming him before the movie really turns on the plot. But people don't always realize is that Iceman, Val, played by Val Kilmer, actually had was just coming off of throat cancer. He's actually just coming off cancer. And he was in remission, but he can no longer speak anymore. He can barely speak. He has to press this little button. He can make like barely make sounds. So the way he sounds when he talks in the movie is actually how he talks in real life mm. now. And so the movie takes on this supernatural quality when you know the backstory. It's one of those scenes where the, it gets better with the backstory. Yeah. There's actual reality. And Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer have a long-term friendship and all the above. But it, just, it was just a beautiful movie. I, you saw Top Gun, right? I didn't. Are you kidding me? It was one of those movies that everyone went and saw, and I don't see movies by myself on you. The first movie I saw by myself uh, don't recently don't was, uh, right was Knock at the Cabin. It was the first movie I've seen by myself <laughs> ever. Everyone went and saw Top Gun, and I'm like, oh, I'll go see it. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a great movie. You should. And I'm like, I guess I'll and go people see it. could see my face right now. I know. It's, it's this it's look of shock and shame, and I will watch shame. it. You should feel I'm shame. There, like that, I'm shaming there, there, you right there's now. There's that, that, that shame from your okay. – you know. Top Gun is on Paramount. If anyone wants to watch it. Oh, and I meant to say Tar is on Peacock earlier as well. And here goes my number one. You all could have guessed this. It's no surprise. I think that, believe this to be the, the winner of the Oscar for Best Picture. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I, 
no surprise anyone listening. I'm not going to give you same. We already talked about it. The only reason I it won't win is I can understand that it's a cult cl- has a cult classic yeah. vibe. So the reason it won't win, I don't think if everything everywhere doesn't win, I don't think Top Gun will win because usually pictures like that kind of more popular movies that usually win the Oscar. So it more likely go to a Banshees or Tar. Probably Banshees. I've heard a lot of good things. People have talked about Banshees and stuff. But anyways, nonetheless. That's my top 10. Everything Everywhere is on Showtime, as we've already said. Kenny, do you have anything else to add after I just went on this long monologue about some great movies? Uh, there's some movies I need to go see. Yep. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Top Gun. Please don't hate me. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I want to see that one because, again, I enjoyed the you know the 1930s. I enjoyed the book. Uh, the, the the time period of World War One and everything around that is just fascinating. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Tar is one of those movies I'm like, I might see eventually. I don't think people... Here's the thing with Tar. The problem with Tar is that it's too close to home. So this was the other thing. They based this, the plot within COVID happening and then coming out of COVID. Okay. So that's why I thought it was so real. I thought it just happened. I was starting to think, how did they make a movie on this so soon? How did I not hear about this? And I think that's why Tar won't be seen by a lot of people because it's mm. almost too close to home. It you don't feel- want to, you don't want to relive something you just walked through. Yes. It feels like that's why it feels so real. So in part, I think it's so masterful because Kate Blanchett takes on an unreal character and makes it feel like this is in the news. You missed something. You should have been paying more attention, but at the same time, it feels so real that I think people will struggle with the movie and stuff. I also like the art and artist type struggle. And mm-hmm. so that's why I like the movie. Yeah. But yeah. I have no further thoughts. All right. Um, well, I look forward to some nights of movies. Well, everyone, please go watch a movie. I mean, that's all I got to say is if you've gotten anything from this list, even if you don't watch the Oscars coming up, just or if it, the Oscars have already taken place, go see some good movies. That's all I would say. And again, if you've, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share this pod. We are a startup. And so this would be helpful in many ways as we get off the ground. Again, you can follow me at at Trev William Horn. As I've alluded to, I've been working on a series of articles in the show. You can go to the show notes below, scroll down, and you can find a link there for all the things I've been writing. If any of these movies sound interesting, there's more words that I have that I've written on those. So you can check that out as Oscars are this coming weekend. And again, um, we just want to thank you. We are grateful to get to walk with you. We are grateful that you're listening and we're grateful to be able to do this together. And so we just want to thank you for being here because this is the very end.